From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Cryptocurrency investors seem to think that the asset class is looking bubblicious and Bitcoin itself uh, is in a bubble, but they don't see it popping anytime soon. Here to talk about this with us is a cryptocurrency investor himself, Chris Berniski, partner of Placeholder. He also uh, is an advisor to ARK Investment Management, which does invest in Bitcoin. And he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So, Chris, would you agree that Bitcoin is in a bubble and yet it won't pop anytime soon, so it doesn't matter? There are any number of ways we could approach this question. On one hand, we could say money is the bubble that never pops. And uh, as a store of value, or, or that being one of its use cases for Bitcoin, there is a lot of demand within the traditional capital markets for uh, a risk-off uh, store of value, a disaster hedge, so to speak, just as people use gold. So that's one side of it. Um, now, Bitcoin is, is off over 25% from its all-time highs. Now, there are over a thousand other crypto assets, right? And many of those um, are near all-time highs. They're not 25% off, um, although today we've had a correction. And many of those, I would argue, are much more in a bubble um, in terms of where their price is relative to where their actual utility is. Chris, maybe just step back for just a second, because I always like to find out, you know, the definition of these things, like a definition of Bitcoin. And I was trying to put it into a context that appeals to my analog brain. And I was thinking of stamps, actual physical paper stamps. There's a limited number that are issued. And if you go back in time, stamps or even revenue script was something that could be traded and could be used for multiple uh, transactions. And at each point, you could even place a little snip or you could cut away a little piece of paper that would sort of detail who actually used that stamp. Is that a good way to look at what a Bitcoin is or what a cryptocurrency, what role it plays? I think that stamps have some properties which relate closely to, to a cryptocurrency. But um, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is more broad in its use cases. And so I really would think of it um, per the economic definition of a currency being a, a means of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. Right now, Bitcoin serves as a great store of value, a mediocre to, 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 to low value med medium of exchange, and not a great unit of account outside of the crypto space because it's so volatile. One uh, aspect that has definitely been present on people's minds is 
this idea of regulation and the SEC came out last week and said that initial coin offerings in particular look a lot like securities. In fact, they are securities, but they're not uh, they're not sticking with they're not following securities laws. How much does the SEC's apparent interest in uh, cryptocurrencies uh, basically cap the potential gains just because this has been a really largely unregulated space and, and that will change? I think um, it doesn't it doesn't cap the opportunity. It actually expands the opportunity in that we need this space to be better regulated. We need more clarity. The entrepreneurs, the investors, all of the all of us are craving uh, more more clarity. And so regulation is just part of the maturation of this asset class. And and for me, there may be uh, temporary jitters um, around the SEC coming in and enforcement action. But longer term, I think this is um, a healthy development. What's the ultimate goal? Is it for Bitcoin to act as basically a gold substitute, uh, a store of value, especially for uh, people in countries where the, the currency is incredibly volatile? Is it to replace paper currencies and replace uh, national currencies? You know, Where are we heading with this? Well, I'm going to pull it uh, back to the idea of crypto assets, which is what I wrote the book on. Um, I think of crypto assets as a new asset class that organizes human activity. And so the goal, I would argue, more than replacing fiat currencies is replacing equities um, as, again, as a means to, in, to organize and incentivize human activity um, around information networks. Bitcoin is an information network that transmits currency. Ethereum is an information network that coordinates uh, compute logic and developers. Filecoin is an information network that stores files. So we go far beyond the idea of uh, cryptocurrencies, which is why I call them crypto assets, into cryptocurrencies, crypto commodities, crypto tokens, and the information networks that they support. Chris, uh, cryptocurrencies and financial technology, fintech, seem to come together, at least in various news reports, particularly when it comes to markets in Asia. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a little insight into what you believe the future will look like in a place that is readily accepting of cryptocurrencies. I mean, could we have a cryptocurrency, let's say that's even backed partly by gold, for example? I think the possibilities are endless. I think um, you brought up Asia. Asia has certainly been um, one of the hard, hottest areas for this space. Um, something that I've been trying to get to the bottom of is how much of this is uh, entrepreneurs and people building real utility versus how much of this is speculators. Because we know um, that some of the Asian nations have a tendency um, or an appetite for speculation. Um, but certainly in, in countries like Korea or China where digital payments, mobile payments uh, are prolific, I think that there's a high likelihood that they adopt cryptocurrencies on a, on a mass scale earlier than we do in the U.S. Just going back to what you were saying about crypto assets, I, I'm trying to envision what this means. Does it mean that there could be some kind of uh, crypto tender uh, that could be used within an industry like a, a retail cryptocurrency sure. specific or, you know, specific to automobiles or something like that? And then you could invest in a sector based uh, type of tender is that is that what you're is that where you're going with this? I think that's one way to look at it. That that would be say sector specific currencies, um, and you could design properties of that currency um, to fit that sector. And there could even be loyalty points baked into it. There's all kinds of things, right? These um, these protocols are really just software that replace middlemen, that commoditize middlemen, and the functions of middlemen in different areas. 
But I just wonder how much a barrier is of having regular consumers wrap their heads around a different form of tender for different types. I mean, it's a complicated issue, in other words. Sure. How do you get enough people on board to make sure. this work? <laughs> well, well, that's the currency aspect, right? And and I don't necessarily know that we end up having sector-specific currencies or more of these universal currencies, some like Bitcoin that are really good at storing value, others like Zcash, which are anonymous, others like Litecoin, which are a little faster, whatever it may be. Um, but again, to pull us back with this opportunity, it's not only currencies, Right, Many of these are commodities, um, creating markets for digital commodities, just as we have markets for physical commodities. So why can't I trade cloud storage futures or bandwidth futures um, or GPU flop futures? And really what crypto commodities, things like Filecoin or Gollum or these things, a lot of those are creating digital uh, markets for these digital commodities. And in terms of getting the, the retail or the, the average investor, average user on board, um, I think we're, we're very similar to you know, late 80s, early 90s, trying to get people on board with the internet. Most people had no clue what it was going to be used for or how it'd be relevant to their lives. And it is built to be relevant into their lives by entrepreneurs and investors. Thanks very much for being with us. Chris Berniski is a partner for Placeholder, and advisor to ARK Investment Management, and he is the author of the book Crypto Assets, The Innovative Investor's Guide to Bitcoin and Beyond. We turn our attention now to Joshua Green, our national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. He can be followed on Twitter at Joshua Green. He is also the author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Josh Green, uh, maybe you want to give us an update. Is if there anything that we need to know about the ongoing feud between the Trump White House, Steve Bannon, the Republican Party? all because of this book, Fire and Fury, by Michael Wolff. Well, it doesn't seem like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, you know, Bannon put out a statement apologizing to Donald Trump Jr., um, who, who he described as treasonous for holding a, a meeting with Russian officials in 2016. Um, doesn't seem to be much indication from the White House that that's doing anything to smooth the waters. Uh, but I've been talking to people in Bannon's orbit who say, you know, he is determined to uh, get himself back into Trump's good graces. And, you know, the only way to do that is to keep on apologizing and trying to ingratiate yourself to Trump, um, who actually does have a long history of continuing to talk to people he's fired and eventually bring them back into the fold. So it's unlikely but not impossible to think that Bannon could somehow worm his way back into the president's good graces. Josh, one thing that I have struggled to understand as this all unfolds is what Bannon's political clout really is, because a lot of people associated him with President Trump's base of supporters. Uh, Breitbart certainly was under his thumb. Breitbart seems to be distancing themselves from Bannon. So does Bannon really represent at this point uh, the base, as so many people initially believed? Well, that's unclear, um, but it's also what I think drove the split between Trump and Bannon. Uh, you know, Trump obviously thinks that nobody but Trump himself deserves credit for his presidential victory. Uh, you know, Bannon, on the other hand, thought that Trump was elected on a set of ideas that Trump turned out not really to believe in that much, this idea of a kind of a right-wing populist nationalism. So Bannon's project, ever since he left the White House last August, was trying to advance 
this national movement beyond Trump. And he had he had uh, spent a lot of time recruiting candidates to run against Republican incumbents, uh, re- candidates who uh, would work to oust Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who Bannon thought was impeding his nationalist project. Um, I think the problem is that Bannon's ego kind of got out ahead of where maybe it belonged. And what we what we're going to find out from this latest episode is now that Trump has split with him so publicly and so decisively, is there really a populist movement that's loyal to these ideas that will split off and go with Bannon, or is it really more a cult of personality that's likely to stay loyal to the president? Josh Green, what does this do for potential legislation regarding infrastructure, welfare reform, and even funding for the U.S.-Mexico border wall? I don't think it does a whole lot. I mean, on the margins, it might make that a little bit easier uh, to, to, to pass. Um, it, it's going to be necessary to do that in a bipartisan manner. And one of the things that Bannon did at Breitbart News was put a lot of pressure on the right wing of the Republican Party not to come together, not to make deals uh, with Democrats. With that voice silenced or diminished, it, it ought to, in theory, be easier for, for the president and Republicans and Democrats in Congress uh, to agree on something and move it forward. Josh, what about Bannon's allies in the White House or former allies? I'm thinking in particular of Steve Miller. Does this potentially threaten their fate in the White House or has Steve Miller effectively uh, gone against Bannon and uh, edified his uh, standing with President Trump? No, Trump made clear you're either with Bannon or you're with me. And Miller is very much with Trump. Um, You know, went on CNN, interview with Jake Tapper yesterday, uh, uh, basically was abasing himself to Trump, um, you know, behaving like a factotum. In fact, the interview was cut short, and Miller <laughs> Miller was apparently marched out of CNN by security. So he's left absolutely no doubt as to where his loyalties lie. They lie with Trump, not Bannon. I think that uh, Jack Taffer at the end of the interview said, there's one viewer you're catering to right now. And he was talking, of course, to uh, regarding uh, President Trump. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to hear your perspective as the expert, frankly, on uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon, and uh, giving some color of what we can expect going forward and uh, why this is significant. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Press 1 for information about your account. Press 2 to make a payment. Robert Locasio. He joins us now. He is founder and chief executive officer of Live Person, which is based in New York and seeks to make that your experience when you call uh, companies that customer service should be automated uh, with artificial intelligence rather than have a real person on the other line. Robert, 
your business has done tremendously well in the past year. Uh, your share prices have surged. Is that the future? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been in the business for 20 years and working contact centers and I invented chat and, and, and I've seen the the change in consumers, but um, the future is really about consumers being able to have a conversation with a human or, an, or an, a bot or something that's automated. And I think ultimately about 80% of conversations will become automated because we want it. We don't want to be on hold. We don't want to make phone calls. And, these, and so our behavior is driving us to do things differently. What's the price point comparison between having a human being answer the phone call and read off of a computer screen as opposed to having a machine listen to your voice and follow various prompts? So it's $6 is the average uh, cost of a phone call. Um, there are about 280 billion phone calls that take place every year to contact centers. So about $1.2 trillion is spent on phone calls. An automated message or, or bot um, or even a cons uh, an agent answering through messaging or something like chat is about $1.50. So $1.50 versus $6. $1.50 versus $6. And, this, and when I go back to this number, it's $1.2 trillion is spent on phone calls that we as consumers have to make that we don't like. And the agents who answer those calls don't like it. And the companies that manage it, nobody likes it. It's well, just, it's hold all. on a second. But I think that part of the criticism of automated uh, responders to these phone calls is their efficacy. And, you know, is this is this a problem? You know, at what point do you end up on hold at the end of a long automated intro anyway, because your request is so nuanced that you do require a live human being? So in the analog world of voice, when you try those automated systems, they're horrible. I mean, they're it, horrible. It was like, I mean, you think about people yes. like screaming into the phone, no! Yes, and then it's Help. noisy. Right, so <laughs> this was just another bad... This is like bad analog with bad analog, like an automated analog system like voice. But when you go to something like we do messaging where, let's say with T-Mobile, you can message to a T-Mobile rep, we can see the text. So we, we can automate a response back. We can bring a human in when it's appropriate. But when you have text and you have that over a digital framework like, like messaging, um, you, can, you can do AI. But you're right, voice, analog, voice, this just needs to go away. I, I think it's evil. You know, I've said it for many years. Voice calls are evil. Wow. Okay. Are are evil? Can can we just in it's that the new case? New axis I'm, of evil. I'm, I'm <laughs> totally. It's it's the greatest waste of our time is being on hold. We lose years of our life sitting on hold. We all know it. It's horrible. Okay. It's horrible. Having said that, I want to go back to sitting on a couch, an IKEA couch specifically, and I'm wondering if you could tell a story about how you launched your first business and what failure has taught you. Yeah, so I started a company out of college in 1990, and it was interactive kiosks like touchscreens for college campuses and funded it on credit cards, but it went under. And in 1995, I sort of picked myself up, and uh, I was in Baltimore at the time, moved to New York City, and I, I sublet a uh, loft from a guy who made T-shirts, a little space in a loft. And I had only a couch and a computer, and, and I ended up sleeping on that couch for two years and showering at a health club. Uh, down the block, down in Tribeca, and that's how I got started with uh, with Live Person. So, I mean, what was the light bulb moment for you for Live Person? The light bulb moment for me was I remember going onto the internet. Uh, this is '95, and uh, and I remember 
obviously there was stuff being said about it at that time, although it was just coming, especially commerce was just starting, but I didn't see anybody on, there was nobody there. It felt like a very lonely experience to me. And that when I showed up at like Dell's website at the time, like there's nobody here. And that drove me to think about how do you bring the human element to the digital element, which was, which was the web. But, um, on the failure side, um, failure for me has always been, I've been 20 years, 16 years, a public company CEO. Um, you know, you only learn through your failures. So it's, it's it, for me and, and you just can't quit. I always tell other CEOs or entrepreneurs when you hit the bottom, you, you just got to work through it and, and there's another a day, but you can't quit at the bottom. You got to keep going. What's the next iteration of automated response? The first thing we have to do is we are working on right now on what we on, on creating conversational design that feels very um, uh, natural. So we as humans need conversations. We know this now. We need conversations to transact. We need to ask questions. And and on the other side, to automate them, we need a way to to uh, create. I call it like a poetic experience that a consumer can ask a question and, and something comes back that's empathetic, that seems human. Um, that doesn't try to fake them out because it isn't human. And so the way we design those conversations are very much, I, I say it's like, because I, I, I was an English literature major, like it's like designing poetry. You know, you want to look at the best conversations from the live agents who had conversations. You want to look at the brand, uh, the brand expression in the market and bring that into a conversation. But I, I can, I, I'm going to make a prediction, which people are going to think I'm a little, a little crazy, but I, I actually think conversational commerce and, and, messaging and, and having conversations will replace great parts of the internet will replace the web websites have failed um it, outside of amazon most businesses don't transact through their websites Thanks and so there's much. not there's an opportunity here we got to leave it there okay. but uh, look forward to having you in the future robert locasio he is the founder and the chief executive of live person and he is indeed live not a robot Well, there was a rousing speech from Oprah Winfrey at the Golden Globes, uh, this having to do with the really first major awards ceremony and bringing to the fore the Me Too moment. And uh, here to help us understand the financial implications is Deborah Katz, founding partner, employee rights attorney for Katz, Marshall and Banks, joining us from Washington, D.C., home to Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Deborah, thank you very much for being with us. Can you connect the uh, topic of sexual harassment in the workplace with discrimination when it comes to equal pay for equal work? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And this is a, a topic that is very important. And it, 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 all too often we silo the topics of sexual harassment and sex-based wage inequities, and yet they're very connected. Sexual harassment is about abuse of power. And often power is abused because you do not have women in the C-suite. Only 5% of uh, Fortune 500 companies have CEOs in those positions. And because of the great power disparity, you have an environment that's more likely to allow sexual harassment to continue. Women who face sexual harassment are six and a half times more likely to leave their jobs. And when they leave their jobs, they're not typically trading up. They're usually trying to get out of a very bad situation 
And they often have to go to lesser-paying jobs and start all over again. They lose equity. They lose title. And ultimately, they have a much bigger loss in economics over their entire career as a result of the sexual harassment experience. So they're very much tied together. Deborah, can you give us a sense of how prevalent the trend that you're describing really is with people, with women leaving their jobs as a result of sexual harassment and thus not able to sort of fulfill their uh, their potential in their careers? Sure. Well, low-income workers tend to be stuck staying in their jobs um, and do not have the uh, luxury in, to get out of some very egregiously harassing situations. But I represent women uh, in financial services, doctors, lawyers, who are highly educated, who are being subjected to sexual harassment, who try to navigate the situation, who try to avoid the harasser and maintain. And at a certain point, they may just decide that they cannot uh, live with that situation. And sexual harassment uh, affects women in law firms, medical practices, financial services, and it's extremely prevalent and it's underreported. And many women reasonably feel that if they come forward and report their concerns, they're going to be persona non grata, not only at their uh, particular company, but within an industry. So many women choose to just vote with their feet and they leave and they try to get out of a bad situation and get somewhere else. And I can't give you a percentage of of women who actually... uh, go to lesser jobs, but in my experience, that's that's not uncommon, and that they wind up landing in less lucrative fields or positions, or they exit their chosen careers altogether, and we're losing tremendous talent as yeah. a result of it. Well, how much of the blame lies with HR departments that could potentially respond to this in a way that would keep them, keep people there, keep women there? The spotlight is clearly on HR departments now, but for I've done this work for over 30 years, and typically HR partner departments carry out the will of management. They're very complicit, and historically we have seen people who harass get away with it because they're perceived as star performers, uh, the big revenue generators, and HR is there to help them remain in place and manage the people out, manage the women out who've asserted claims. Now, we're in a moment where... That type of behavior is less is less tolerable, and we're seeing some very famous and high-profile people uh, being uh, terminated in very public ways. But HR departments have been complicit in allowing this kind of behavior to go forward for decades and decades. And HR officials often do not have reporting relationships that allow them to elevate the issues without themselves having a target on their backs. So we often represent HR people who have tried to do the right thing but have not been given the power, or when they made recommendations to exit real star uh, harassers, uh, they themselves found their careers uh, in jeopardy. So it's a complicated issue, but um, I think we know that without really a tone at the top, it says sexual harassment is not acceptable and will not be tolerated in this company. Uh, HR uh, officials are really not given the power that they need to do what they need to eradicate sexual harassment within their companies. Deborah Katz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll have to have you back. Deborah Katz, founding partner and employee rights attorney with Katz, Marshall and Banks, which is based in Washington, D.C.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.